This is Mike Levitt, a co-founder of the Accountable Care Learning Collaborative. Our nation is faced with two very important, but sometimes competing priorities. We have a duty to provide the best possible health care for every patient, but we must also remain competitive in a global marketplace. That's what value-based care is all about. Our challenge is to create a uniquely American system of health care. Truly, we're in a race to make value work. Welcome to the Race to Value, a weekly podcast hosted by Dr. Eric Weaver and Daniel Chipping of the Accountable Care Learning Collaborative. The ACLC is a nonprofit organization focused on accelerating industry readiness for success in value. With its competency-based framework for health value, the ACLC is working with healthcare organizations all over the country to create the workforce of tomorrow. Come join Eric and Daniel as they engage the executives, clinicians, and entrepreneurs who are leading this race to value. Race to Value listeners, this week we have Mark Redless, Chief Executive Officer of Tritium, the nation's premier provider of digital behavioral health solutions. Mark is a venture-backed startup executive with significant leadership experience in all aspects of corporate management, M&A, strategy, and innovation. So excited to have Tritium and Mark on the show and to learn more about what they're doing. You know, Mark's company was the 2020 Pact Healthcare Innovator of the Year. I mean, this is a company, Dan, that, I mean, they're serving 2,000 clinical facilities, 7,000 behavioral health providers. They're advancing treatment of behavioral health to 11,000 patients a day. Truly good work. And I'm really excited for the first time on Race to Value. We have a whole episode to really talk about behavioral health integration and certainly an important issue to address in value-based care. Yeah, Eric, you're right. This is such an important topic. Uh, Mark and I discussed this in the episode that this is personal. It's personal to me and my family. It's personal to him and his family. And, and I know that it's personal to so many of our listeners out there as well. Behavioral health is a topic that needs to be discussed. And I'm so glad we have Mark here today to talk about it. And the, the other thing that I think is so important that you've touched on, Eric, is that you know, we need these technology innovation solutions that are partnerships with our current healthcare industry and our healthcare professionals to bring solutions to these big challenges that we haven't had answers to yet. Well, let's hear more from Mark, CEO of Tritium, in today's Race to Value. Mark Redlist, thanks for joining us today on the Race to Value. Great to be here. Thanks for having me. Well, Mark, I thought a great way to start our conversation today would be to start with why. Your company, Tritium, was started with the transformational vision to advance behavioral medical integration by delivering capabilities to identify those who need behavioral help and, of course, speed their access to care and deliver a measurable impact to outcomes. And as I understand, Apple was a huge inspiration in Tritium's founding and you personally are an Apple fanatic, and I share your zealotry about Apple, man. Yeah, that is that is definitely, I don't know about in its founding, I guess in its rebirth. You know, Tritium actually is one of the, I guess, oldest startups that no one had heard about until, you know, the last four years, five years in its rebirth. But it, it actually was founded in 2001 by a PhD psychologist, actually two of them. And it really spent the first 14 years of its life in formal research. This was really a research think tank, not doing much from a commercialization standpoint with a software or product, but rather, I say this somewhat in a, in a silly way, but it was scratching the itch of those two psychologists in responding to the idea that digital intervention can make a difference in outcomes and the very fact of measuring how a patient and a clinician were doing together would in fact inform better outcomes in the end, creating a loop. And, and so I, I came on the scene with the first outside investment money, and I came in actually as the number two person at that time. There was a CEO that came in a couple months ahead of me, 
and I was responsible for product and innovation. About three quarters of the company reported to me, and it was great. It was the first time I actually, in five startups or venture-backed entities, that I got to the chance to run the strategy and product without the distraction of raising money, necessarily leading sales, managing a board, all of those things, which you and your listeners can imagine are, are, are profound distractions, even though they're necessary distractions. So I got to really be pure somewhat of thought in helping to craft a way to commercialize all of this wonderful research that had been done into something that hopefully somebody would use. And, and so big long way to get to your Apple reference. Apple has served, Steve Jobs obviously having passed on, but that mode of thinking about crafting products that people can deeply care about and want to use, I, I'm not sure we've, we've gotten there completely, but it informs a lot of the product decisions that we made five years ago, six years ago. It, it still informs them today. Well, I love it, Mark. And from where you started, you're commercializing this research. You're thinking about design thinking and bringing something to market that's going to be disruptive. And I can't help but think of that Simon Sinek TED Talk. You know where he says, uh, he references Apple and he communicates like them. And he says, everything we do, we believe in challenging the status quo, thinking differently, beautifully designed, simple, user-friendly products. And it really seems like you guys are innovating in that area. So I, I look forward to learning more about that today. And you know, there's another part of your why that I know is very personal and important to you. And a few years after you started the commercialization and building the new product with Tritium and, and going to market, I believe it was in, you know, a couple of years ago, your beautiful, brilliant, talented young daughter, she, you know, attempted to take her own life. And thankfully she wasn't successful, but, you know, just as close as you were to your company and dealing with the behavioral health crisis in our country. I wanted to ask you, how did that create a more of a personal why for you to pursue the mission at Tritium to really be the nation's premier provider of digital behavioral health solutions? Can you speak a little bit about that? Yeah. You know, as you were laying that out, I was thinking about how I felt during those moments and days and, and weeks about that. And actually, my daughter and son-in-law were, were down here visiting with us uh, this past weekend. So literally just 36 hours ago, I saw her. So it was really, you know, every time I see her, I'm so happy to see her. But what that actually informed for the most part for, for me, and we were down a road commercializing the product mostly around outcomes up until then. We had just started working on access and we can expand those thoughts as the conversation goes, but we looked at you know two profound problems in behavioral healthcare. They're not our ideas, they're, they're obvious in the market, which is improving patient outcomes. Are, are patients getting better? What are we doing to help them get better than we used to do years ago? And the other one is access. We have a, a, a certainly an access, a growing access problem in this country. It was a problem before COVID, it has become a much bigger problem with COVID. I don't know if really we've seen the top yet on how this is going to go as far as mental health overall impact on people. I think the months and, and frankly years ahead will we'll tell that tale. But what happened, I think, when, when Catherine, that's my daughter's name, went through that and obviously in the immediate 24 hours after that occurred and, and she was in an inpatient situation and my son-in-law and I experienced, not as deeply as Catherine did, but experienced the inadequacy of care in those 24, 48, 72 hours after something like that happens. And I think that inspired a more supercharged focus on how we can do better about unlocking access sooner when people are, are feeling these feelings. How do they get care without spending 30, 60, 90 days or more searching for someone to talk to? That's kind of unacceptable in a country like this, but that is in fact how, where we find ourselves today. And so, so I think Catherine, in many ways, and so many people, people in my own company have stories, maybe not exactly like Catherine, but friends, relatives that have, have, have been confronted with the very same thing I was confronted with in that August day that Catherine really faced down the barrel of. And, 
And I think that has inspired a lot of the work. It inspires the evolution, even in the last six to nine months, where we've really massively kind of caught the flywheel on access. Mark, thanks so much for sharing the story of Tritium and and your personal connection to your leadership commitment for advancing behavioral health and behavioral medical integration. I'd like to just echo your sentiment that this is deeply personal for so many people, including myself. My family really struggles with mental and behavioral health challenges every day. And so on a personal note, I'm grateful for your work here. And as you've alluded to, these problems are not unique to you or me. Right now, one out of five Americans, over 51 million people are living with a behavioral health condition. This is truly alarming. There are approximately 20 million individuals in the U.S., with a substance use disorder, and 9 million people, 4% of the population, have had suicidal thoughts in the past year. Of those with mental health or substance abuse issues, unpaid caregivers and minority populations are the most vulnerable. So on top of the challenges we face here, we've got further challenges that are immense in addressing behavioral health in our country. Although 70% of primary care appointments include problems with significant psychosocial issues, less than half of those primary care patients actually receive any mental health treatment at all. As a matter of fact, only 43% of suicide victims had any contact with their primary care provider within a month of their suicide. Our nation's longstanding mental health crisis has been exacerbated by major societal stressors recently with the COVID-19 pandemic, heightened awareness and feelings about racial inequality, a heated election season, and now the need to treat mental health conditions is at the forefront in a way that it's never been before. And as you say, primary care is at the tip of the spear. Can you share with our listeners your perspective on how to achieve better integration of behavioral health in primary care in the current environment? I mean, what is the difference in behavioral health outcomes between co-located multidisciplinary models versus truly integrated models that are more interdisciplinary in nature? And with the more idealized integration model, is that actually scalable without associated changes to payment models and an increased supply of psychiatrists and psychotherapists to see everybody in need? Is technology the holy grail for scalability and impact for integrated behavioral health? So is technology the holy grail? It may be an unpopular response with uh, my peers and even my colleagues at Tritium, but I would say it is not the holy grail. And then that might be surprising, but I think technology has a role to play, and I think it's a very necessary part of getting to a fully integrated behavioral health experience for patients. But I think technology is really maybe one third or one half of the the opportunity or the the capabilities required to do that. So when we talk about co-located and fully integrated, you could be co-located and fully integrated, but co-located does not necessarily mean fully integrated. And and so when you hear those terms talked about or bandied about, co-located, and this is a a more common theme we're seeing in what are considered more integrated health systems where you're getting multidisciplinary care, typically in the same building, you might see general medicine, primary care, podiatry, neuro, you know, a host of other kind of what we call healthcare service lines or delivery areas, all co-located within the same small format building with practitioners belonging to the same overall system or or group practice setting. And behavioral healthcare is tending to show up in those spots as well. We're seeing a lot more of that. In the integrated sense, when we talk about integrated, those practitioners, those clinicians from a behavioral health standpoint are fully situated within the flow of the primary care practice. When we talk about primary care integrated with with behavioral, that could mean multiple things from a layering standpoint, but up to and including where you've got social workers on staff or counseling on staff as part of a completing the loop. If in fact a patient surfaces an issue either through a self-reported assessment or a proctored interview with their primary care doc or a nurse navigator, 
that if something is flagged, then we try to close the loop and immediately triage it within the practice and identify what the next steps in that path might be for that patient uh, with the patient hopefully fully engaged in making those care decisions. That is the beginning of integrated care as far as that experience goes. And that, as I lay that out verbally, requires an investment of both a practice investment and a system investment in putting those people there and making them available so that they are in fact ready when those those issues arise and can surface and work through them with patients. That can go all the way up to psychiatry and psychological counseling in the practice and that referral loop being captured within uh, that physical practice setting, which is not as common right now during COVID, but at some point we'll start to see more of that coming back along. With COVID, and frankly, with all of the virtualization that's taking place, we're seeing a bigger, bolder opportunity to include telepsychology and telepsychiatry into the practice jet stream, into that workflow as part of the actual care, just virtualizing that flow that I talked about. Obviously, to make all of that work, it would be very difficult to do with a paper and a pencil to characterize that and to categorize that in a way that you could operate anything at scale in a model like that. That's obviously where where companies like Tritium, but other digital programs and digital care delivery come into play and can ease the burden and help with the lift of that from case management to care delivery, to follow-up, and to really everything in between, all emanating from that what you said, I think, Dan, in, in your opening question to me, the tip of the spear being primary care. That's where we see the broadest array of behavioral health demand coming in. That's the opportunity is to kind of capture it right there and, and get ahead of this as early as possible. Well, Mark, as you talk about that, you know, I'm thinking we all know it. Primary care is the, the tip of the spear. But then I, I remember, you know, just years ago seeing a, a survey from NACOS and it said like only I believe it was 14% of ACOs even had a behavioral health component within their value-based model. So it still seems like it's nascent in its stages in terms of adoption in the value-based care community. And I think about just the impact of successful integrated program and what that can do in terms of improving patient outcomes and lowering costs. I mean, just a few examples. I mean, patients that have chronic disease are three to four times more likely to have uh, behavioral health comorbidities. And if they're left untreated, I mean, that's going to lead to functional impairments, poor compliance, increased costs. I mean, you look at patients like with diabetes, for example, I mean, that could cost on average about 9000 a year. But then if you layer in mental health illness, substance use disorder, I mean, the costs skyrocket. It could be like 36000 And so it's true across the board for all of these chronic conditions like CHF, COPD, other illnesses. I mean, clearly there's a linkage between mental health and episodes of care that could, that could be 50% more. And then you know, you see that patients with chronic disease, they're three times more likely to be non-compliant if they have behavioral health issues. And primary care physicians are really struggling on what to do with this and managing these issues. I know a lot of them are over-prescribing, you know, psychotropic medications and antidepressants. And there was one stat I recall reading a while back, the American Psychiatric Association said that we could save as a country somewhere in the range of like 26 to $48 billion if we had an effective integration of medical and behavioral services. And that would be like a 5 to 10% decrease of the nation's overall health costs. So Mark, I'm really thinking a lot about these stats and what Tritium's doing to improve outcomes. And you know, can you provide our listeners maybe with a few examples of organizations that have had a more advanced behavioral medical integration that led to improved clinical and cost outcomes and, and maybe how that translated into shared savings for some of their risk contracts? And then generally, what are your views on the value movement in terms of being able to accelerate integration of behavioral health in the long term? So I think the, the best way to think about the work we're doing in these integrated spaces, so I'm not telling tales out of school here. Obviously, there was a press release done late last year announcing our work with Fresenius. And I'll, I'll probably use that as my best case and, and kind of what it's a little too early to tell on, on kind of the impact and total cost. But what we're seeing 
what we've been asked to do there is to help, in fact, facilitate, for those of your listeners who don't know, Fresenius is actually the leader, but one of the two primary companies in the CKD, ESRD, and stage renal disease, uh, kidney failure and dialysis space, not only in this country, but, but globally for Fresenius. And they're obviously very focused, like your example in diabetes, obviously dialysis is extremely expensive. We know because we've done the the work with the data that as much as, and this is probably about exactly right, 40% of patients currently experiencing and receiving dialysis treatment are presenting a medium to high level of acuity on a mental health or a behavioral health related issue. And they're going to have higher incidence across the board of depression, anxiety, and frankly, suicidality as you kind of play through that demographic. When we look at our work that we're doing in totality, I would say we're not as privy, although I think that's evolving over the next year. And if we had this conversation 12 months from now, probably could have real data to share with you, but we do see a movement and a compression in total cost imputed from the outcomes data we can see in working with patients that have experienced several of those comorbidities. Dialysis is one, but others where you're seeing in total cost of care, if you can move a patient from high acuity or a high severity presenting of depression, anxiety, or, or, or all of the above, you could see a, a savings of 60 to 80% in total cost of care, as opposed to if that patient was left untreated for that behavioral health comorbidity. So those numbers are, are I think, fairly consistent. When you're talking about some of these very severe end-stage or chronic disease categories, these expenses look more like when, when a behavioral health issue is present, you might see $20,000 in total cost as a single disease category and a number of these. You could see sixty dollars or $80,000 in total cost of care with emergency room admissions, inpatient hospital admissions, and inconsistency of receipt of care necessary for them to live. If we can stave off those issues, you start to see real compression in those costs and expenses. And that leads right into value-based contracting as opposed to fee-for-service, which frankly, I don't even know how you could do value-based contracting and care arrangements if you didn't own the behavioral health and you couldn't drive behavioral health care access for members and patients of health plans and systems. Well, Mark, I was thinking we could circle back to something you've mentioned that is about, in order to advance behavioral and medical integration, you know, we think about technology and the innovation that has to happen. And we have to create highly usable and consumable products that lean into how patients and providers realistically function on a daily basis and not build it around a hope that people will embrace it just because it's well-intentioned, but it needs to be designed well. Most people like me are not super tech savvy, so the products have to resonate at a visceral level and, and be a defining experience for the end user. So like this iPhone conversation, the Apple conversation you had with Eric earlier. From what I understand, the Tridium platform acts as a two-way engagement channel between the patient and the provider, and it's elegantly designed with both of those end users in mind. And consequently, you're able to get around 96% patient adherence, which is truly amazing. On the provider side of the equation, providers seem to find the solution provider-centric and user-friendly more so than other technologies that have been sometimes more impairing than enabling. And Technology has become, as we know, very much part of the fabric of how care is delivered, both inside and outside of the four walls of the health system. So I know you've given a lot of thought about how tech enablement can usher in a new era in behavioral health treatment. So Could you describe how Tritium has designed its platform to be highly user-friendly and easily integrated into the workflow of a provider, as well as integrated into the normal day of a patient in need of behavioral health assistance? And given the need for more provider and care support education for mental health, substance use disorder, and suicide prevention, how do you approach storytelling as a way to advocate for behavioral health integration so that you get that provider buy-in and health system adoption on a broader basis? First off, we are not without our challenges, even though our products are consistently referred to as beautiful 
and easy to work with and insightful. We get a lot of those, those comments, but at the same time, and, and this is really having a very straight speaking, transparent conversation about the state of behavioral health providers and measurement in this country, we're still kind of in hand-to-hand combat with respect to the incorporation of measurement as a part of a behavioral health clinician or professional's standard of practice. And, and I think everybody on this in this conversation could understand and appreciate that it's not probably your favorite thing to be measured in every single interaction you have professionally and have that translated into data that effectively provides the patient and hopefully you with insights as to whether or not that patient's progressing, how well treatment is going, et cetera. What we find, you know, I'll call it the top quartile of clinicians readily embrace this, but you would see that in the top quartile of all professions where you want to be measured because you want to know, in fact, and confirm exactly how good you are at what you do. And I think the challenge with that is that the top 25% is obviously very important and they tend to be your leading adopters and indicators of, of if the product is resonating. If they're using it, that's a good sign. The work being done, as I refer to as hand-to-hand, is in the workflows and the pathways and the encouragement that our product is and can provide providers that are being challenged in treatment with a, with a patient or their patient is challenging them and they're not progressing or they're not, it's not working, whatever it is. And so I'll step back into your, your comment about storytelling, because I literally just had this conversation yesterday, and we have obviously a pretty significant or strong research and innovation team. Our product teams also work hand in glove with those folks all the time. And we talked about the art of storytelling. Data wasn't, in fact, good enough. We're talking about this literally right now. Providing data and insights aren't good enough, but in fact, we need to go the extra step with providers, and I mean the mainstream, non-top quartile providers, in showing a path towards how to improve in your your clinical practice and really reward them psychologically for using the product. And if anybody's ever used a really great digital mobile product or any type of software product, you tend to use those that confirm or help validate whatever you're trying to do. You might be playing a game, you might be using it for some type of utility, what have you. The product itself becomes a partner with you and encourages you. And so we want to be able to allow providers to write their own stories, stories that within the product show and demonstrate to them that they've uncovered some nugget that could make all the difference in treatment for a patient. We want to highlight that, reinforce that, and help them become kind of a vibrant, energized provider that will go out and tell the story about how this product has impacted them and their patients in such a profound way. It's nothing if we're just going onesie twosies along the way, trying to get folks to use the product from a utility standpoint. They have to love the product. And while there are providers that love our products, not everybody loves our products. And we would be joking and kidding ourselves if we in fact thought that. And it it really compels us to go back, innovate, work, rework the challenge of overcoming what is kind of this inertial kind of clinical response to your big brother, you're measuring me. I don't feel great about that. We can do better and we are doing better and improving that experience for them right now. That's that's really what's going on. Well, Mark, you mentioned that your users have to love the product and then that's going to create the tipping point to get you know wider adoption. And I think about something else that obviously is going on right now, this black swan event of COVID-19. And that's truly had an unprecedented amount of change in you know, creating dramatic uptake in the use of telepsychiatry and digital mental tools like smartphone apps. And there's reports now that physicians that we're maybe using telehealth like 20% of the time. And you know, now, I mean, at the peak of the pandemic, it was like 80%. 
And uh, I know you guys at Tritium did a survey last August, you know, and 83% of respondents in that survey said that video conferencing had no impact or a positive impact on the level of information that people shared about their personal lives. And 39% of those in the survey felt that patients disclosed even more during the video visit because maybe they were more comfortable being in their home rather than a traditional office setting. So COVID-19, it created this accelerated technology adoption. And, and it's not just video visits. I mean, there's been interest in mental health apps and other asynchronous technologies. As video visits and telepsychiatry become more common in care, uh, integrating digital data from smartphones and wearables are going to be even more important in, in both clinicians and patients are going to want to use that data to synchronize with their electronic medical record. So Mark, it really seems that given that COVID-19 has catalyzed digital mobile consumerism into the healthcare mainstream, I thought I wanted to ask you about what is your take on the future and how digital health technology will further accelerate behavioral health integration? I mean, what is the future going to look like in the next few years when you have emerging advancements like AI and IoT, 5G wearables and gamification of consumer apps? Can you speak a little bit about that? Yeah, I definitely can. And this is probably my favorite topic to, to talk about now is future think and what we're working in. And I think we're doing our part to help write that future and not in some kind of kind of superficial way, but in a deeply, deeply engineered way in the, in the very guts of kind of how behavioral health care is delivered in this country. I think when you look at where we have come from, where we are today, and where we're going, and we talked about how you correctly, I think, have characterized COVID as being a black swan event, for sure. If you look forward, and the demand continues to rise, and I, I think we do believe that, and I think health plans and integrated systems are, are racing to catch up to how to adequately respond to this increase in demand. Even our federal government's trying to do that through Medicare, CMS, et cetera. You've got to look at behavioral health care delivery and the response to this demand in a completely out-of-the-box way and really extract ourselves from the idea of, I need to see a therapist or a psychiatrist to work on my problem. I think there, it, there certainly is a place for that. And what we're advocating for is if we can use digital technology to, in fact, assess where those patients are from a risk, stratification, severity, acuity level, to help direct them to the right modality of care, that is the first step, is just identifying where these people are and what they probably and truly need to start with. That could have the biggest impact on reducing costs at the tip of the sphere of behavioral health care and also unlocking capacity for all this pent up and, and not so pent up demand that we're seeing. So when you talk about like digital therapeutics, wearables, self-paced things, digital therapies that you can use on your own, all of those things should be considered arrows in our quiver. And if you take a more portfolio view of what's being assembled out there from apps to digital time-limited care delivery to analog care delivery and to all of those things working together and in concert, we really need to be able to hub and spoke these pieces and move them in and out of availability for that patient in the moment that they need that kind of right care, right time, right place. And so Tritium has done quite a bit behind the scenes and not so behind the scenes over the last couple of years of moving from a point solution on outcomes and frankly, a point solution access to more of a platform, truly a cloud-based platform. And that's what Tritium One has evolved to. We don't really have all these discrete products. They all unify as features or capabilities on the platform today. What Tritium One is capable of doing now and this is very exciting. I think this is the first time I've publicly talked about this, so here's your scoop. But we have generated what I believe in behavioral health care, or digitally or otherwise, is the first truly network effect-based model on a platform. And what I mean by that is customers that subscribe to Tritium One are actually helping other customers of ours that subscribe to Tritium One. 
And our products and the very algorithms and capabilities that, that we do are now being exposed through APIs that are beyond and help create consumable aspects of Tritium One to be embedded in other digital platforms, therapies, apps, et cetera, that tie us all together through the measurement that this company was founded on. And we can now, we have been, we are starting to do this. We are choreographing and coordinating patients starting in one spot like primary care or in some type of chronic disease area. And we are facilitating the connection of that patient across Tritium One, starting one place and going to a provider or a digital therapy or some digital alternative to take care of that patient. And we are capable now of following the patient through that path and reporting to all major stakeholders that subscribe and care for that patient on how that patient is progressing. We see that it's not going to just be us, but we see that as foundational to unlocking behavioral health care at a galactic level uh, you know, for this country and, and obviously beyond. So I'll, I'll stop there and see if you have any questions about that. Yeah, I do, Mark. I love that vision and democratizing that data and you know leveraging APIs and interoperability in a way that you can create a foundation to bring providers together and manage care of patients with behavioral health issues across the continuum. But I'm I'm just thinking about just the, some of the challenges we have, uh, especially with highly sensitive information. How are you thinking about that in terms of HIPAA requirements and making sure that you can leverage maybe fire and APIs, interoperability, share information, but then also have the right safeguards in place. Yeah, that's a that's a big part of, of why we have to crawl before we walk, before we run, is it's one thing to realize the vision from a user experience standpoint. It's another to create all the foundational elements and engineer those, both from an infrastructure standpoint and from an application layer standpoint, to enable protection through the path of that patient level data. This has been a hallmark of Tritium is securing data and enabling this concept of following the patient. It's not just a provider or a group's data, it's actually the patient's data. And, and this portability factor of allowing it to hand off through proper consents electronically and moving patient through that pathway is all part of the flow and workflow of the infrastructure and the security that goes into Tritium One. And I can tell you, we invest a lot in this particular area, including certifications around security. We're, we're on a path to, to elevating to the highest levels of that right now and demonstrating that. There's quite a bit that goes into that protection. And obviously, we create a HIPAA-compliant data-hosted environment right now for those customers and clients that subscribe to us and their patients' data. But beyond that, we've now gone to a totally different level of protecting not just data at rest, but data in transit. And that is kind of what we think is a tipping point for facilitating unlocked capacity in this country. Well, Mark, I wanted to expound on some of your ideas around uh, AI, you know, and how that can be leveraged to improve access to behavioral health care. I mean, in an unintegrated kind of normal scenario, which is what we have in a lot of places in the country, you identify a behavioral health issue, you can't make a referral, you might look at psychotropic or pharmacological solutions and overprescribe. And obviously, there's countless scenarios where, you know, therapy plus medication or therapy alone is a much more effective of treatment protocol. And I know you can't really do a whole lot on the supply side of the equation, but you're really doing a lot of great work and creating a solution that's going to enable access. And as I understand, a big part of that is having a faster pathway to the first appointment to see a behavioral health specialist yeah. through uh, deep learning algorithms that you use. And it helps primary care physicians identify those who need the help. And you've got the diagnostic specificity and screening in place. And that's 
a heck of a lot better than the PHQ nines that the doctors are using that screen only for depression. And you're not really getting the richness of data and understanding what are other underlying issues like anxiety and PTSD and substance use. And so can you just describe to our listeners how Tritium is thinking about AI machine learning and how that can really help better assess the patient's health condition and maybe the proximity and availability of the provider as well. And then to the extent that you can also use video and, and help enable uh, an interaction to take place. I'm really interested to see how you can reduce the patient time to access in an environment where a lot of PCPs are really struggling to make these referrals. Yeah, I'm happy to, to talk about that pretty expansively. I'll just say before I get into it, for those listeners that are sticklers about AI and describing it exactly as it is, there is a pretty significant difference between deep learning and, and machine learning. So I, I want to talk about our product and the algorithms we're building and how this is engineered as, as machine learning, not deep learning in the classic sense. So what we've done, and, and you've really correctly assessed a lot of it, I'm just going to expand on, on your description our product has moved significantly to the front lines in call centers, digital front doors, and integrated systems, now with health plans, as we help uncover just, in fact, what we've been talking about in the last 45 minutes, patients in need, how severe that is, what, in fact, they're presenting, whether it's anxiety, depression, a whole host of other things, TSD, could be all of the above, some drug-related issue, you name it, that can all be surfaced up. It's the fastest growing area of our business, and it's facilitating the network effects that I just talked about in this last segment. The algorithm that we have constructed, the acronym that we use, it's called FICOM, stands for Feedback Informed Care Optimized Match. And we are leaning into our roots of data when we do this. And we effectively help patients who are presenting through self-report or a proctored assessment. They present and they're scored in a way that determines what in fact is showing up. And at the same time, because so many providers, and there are thousands and thousands of providers using our product today, so many providers are on the platform. They are, in fact, subscribing and are in these groups that are trying to do these matches. We can see the performance over time and the progression or decline or stagnation of how providers work with certain types of patients that present like situations or like issues as they're conducting these assessments or they're being proctored or, or what, what have you. So when that happens, we almost get the equivalent of a behavioral health mini fingerprint for a patient. It's stripped of really any of their PHI other than what is being shown as far as anxiety, depression, et cetera. And at the same time, we're getting a cross-section fingerprint of what the provider is best at. We then overlay that with availability, proximity to the patient's work or home, whether or not they can deliver virtual care through a telemodality, or in fact, they're face-to-face, -face, or they could do both. All of those filters apply on top of what is observed as far as their performance with patients over time. And that all characterizes them and presents them as what could be the best and highest potential match for the patient that is presenting on the other side of the transaction ledger in this case. I can tell you that in 2020 alone, we conducted 134,000 of those matches. And this is in the early days of our product as it's being rolled out. What I can also tell you is the benchmark that we went into in this integrated health system with the product, approximately 28 days from a patient first calling in seeking care to a patient's first appointment with this network of providers. After the product is in, that number has compressed from 28 days down to about 6.1 days from first call to first visit, well within the regulatory kind of a firm climate that they're targeting as far as responsiveness, which I think is like best in class anywhere in this country when you talk about how fast you can facilitate a first visit and, and connection. 
So that's happening today, real time. Uh, that's becoming much more expansive in its utility and utilization with various types of use cases. And it effectively is powering or will continue to power that network effects model between two of our subscribing partners or customers, helping to connect those two together, all powered through those types of uh, machine learning algorithms. Mark, I'd like to shift our conversation a little bit and talk about the working population. According to a Kaiser Family Foundation poll, 53% of U.S. adults reported that their mental health had been negatively impacted by the coronavirus. This translates to employers bearing a disproportionate share of costs, many of which are related to absenteeism in the workplace. An estimated 200 million workdays are actually lost each year due to depression, costing employers between 17 and $44 billion annually. We've reached now the 11th anniversary of the ACA being signed into law, and one of the most fundamental of reforms arose out of the simple definition of essential health benefits. So here we have, for the first time in our nation's history, health insurance plans which were obligated to include mental health and substance use disorders, including behavioral health treatment, as covered benefits in their policies. So behavioral health providers who previously had very little exposure prior to the ACA have been on a sharp learning curve when it comes to dealing with commercial payers. So I'd like to know more from Tritium, what are you doing in the employer space? And can you talk about your collaboration with Crossover Health to help employers take a data-driven approach to addressing this growing mental health crisis and its impact on employees across the country? We're definitely in the early days of accelerating and helping employers make real progress here. You, you see a lot of digital companies that have focused on in this particular area and emphasize this as a as a real opportunity to make progress. And I would concur that employers are equally, if not better than primary care, as far as uh, an opportunity that could have profound impact on our nation's overall mental health and well-being. If, if you can make progress in the workplace, you can make real progress. That being said, it does seem to be a bit of a class problem <laughs> with workplaces in the sense that if you're a really big company, you have the scale to leverage these types of things, it works. So much of this country is employed in the small to medium-sized business market, and obviously more, even more in the emphasis on the small. Those are tougher segments to provide an adequate solution for. Is cost justifiable to them in their minds, given kind of what they're what what they're having to work with here? And and so I think there's an opportunity to provide a version of the solutions that are out there for the WalMarts and Cisco's and, and Facebook's of the world for the 10 or 15 person company down the road that is very important to the, the employees and the, and the owners of it, but just doesn't have the same type of access. So there, I think that's a real real situation out there as, as we, we go forward. The work with Crossover is also in the early going here in the early stages, but we are seeing great early results. I saw our first report just earlier in the month on kind of progress and, and data capture and, and just getting a sense of where that is. Yeah, they work with some really amazing large-scale organizations in campus and virtualized models. Obviously, a lot more emphasis on virtual these days. Our best work right now is in helping to enable those companies to capture data and service patients in the form of employees, much like we're doing in some of these other areas. We're probably not so much selling directly to employers as helping facilitate or enabling providers like Crossover to do even better and demonstrate that progress in, in quantifiable terms to the employers that are in fact retaining them uh, to do this work. So we have a little bit of a step away from the, the front lines of the employers, but nonetheless supporting these efforts as it goes forward. I think it's an important part of our emerging part of our market and one that I think will grow significantly in the second half of the year. But right now, there's a lot of proof points going on out there. And so many companies are doing such good work, but Crossover certainly among those. Well, Mark, as we wrap up today, you know, I was thinking it would be great if you could provide a parting thought 
to our listeners on healthcare innovation. How will consumer-centric solutions and technology innovation help our country win this race to value in the years to come? Yeah, so you, you talked about the holy grail earlier in the conversation. Is technology the holy grail to integrated behavioral health care? And, and I said no. However, I would say for value-based contracting and where our country needs to go to incentivize medicine and, frankly, ourselves to take better care of ourselves, to be activated, engaged patients in our own well-being is going to require technology. This whole movement that started, I guess technically started with the Samsung Life Gear Watch, but Apple Watch kind of took it to the next step. And you all know how much I love Apple. So we'll just use that as a, as a lever point. But this quantified self, Fitbit obviously is part of that too. The quantified self, I think, really laid down the foundation for what is going to eventually need to happen to make value-based care and payment arrangements work in this country. And I don't think I'm alone in this opinion. It's probably closer to fact, but it's tough to make money in fee-for-service healthcare or a provider or a system. It's only when you get to take risk and candidly put your money where your mouth is that you can really work on wellness and keeping patients for the most part out of acute situations where profitability can really be unlocked. And nobody wants to be in a business where they make no money or they lose money. And certainly healthcare is a business. So there's an opportunity to take it to the next level, but without technology, without digital capabilities to connect and serve as the rebar for all of this, Innovation is our only gateway to value-based care at scale. There's pockets of it, but those pockets are using technology to make them happen. So without this, we're really up the creek. When we at Tritium look at what we're doing, we know we are crafting a path and we're making bets on this path. We could be wrong, that's for sure, but someone is going to have to do this. And we wake up every day thinking, why can't it be us? Thanks so much, Mark. We really enjoyed our time together today. How can listeners find out more about Tritium if they want to adopt your solution and, and learn more? So obviously, easiest way to do it is on our website. So tritium.com, T-R-I-D-I-U-U-M.com. You best can find me on LinkedIn. I've got a, quite a presence there and always writing stuff and sharing. So you can just find me at Mark Redless uh, on LinkedIn and just look me up and drop me a line and please reach out. I love to connect. So we'll, we'll make that happen. And those are probably the, and Trinium obviously has a presence on LinkedIn as well. So happy to do that and connect. Um, those are the, the best ways to find out. You guys did a great job, I think, with your questions. And, and I really appreciated it. So I, I think that was, that was really fun. So thank you. Oh, thanks so much. Th thanks, guys.